welcome to the History Hotline, the hottest line for all things Black history and beyond. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 75 of the History Hotline. My name is Deanna Lincook and as always I'm your host today and today's episode is unfortunately going to be quite a, an upsetting one, um, I will say. It, it's about a man called David Aluwale. Um, before I get into the episode, um, I'll start with a trigger warning and just to say that there's a lot of violence in this episode and it's just a really sad story and I'll be honest, I never wanted to make this podcast um, and, you know, once you've listened, you can kind of take that as you will, but I really didn't ever want to make an episode about what happened to David Aluwale because it's just, oh, one of the most horrific stories I think in like 20th century black British history and it's not even black British history it's British history um and it's just a terrible story there's really no other way there's no silver lining here there's no like lesson learned there's no cloud like that it's not a nice story um so you know, if you're having a nice day and you don't want to be put in the headspace of a horrific story, then this episode might not be for you. Um, and I will say that and, you know, don't ever feel, you know, sad or, um, you know, like you've let me down if you don't listen to an episode that's going to be traumatic because sometimes you have to choose joy. Um, and if that's for you today, then please feel free to listen to something else. Um, but in light of recent events in regards to David Alawale, it is important for me to tell this story today. Um, so, you know, let's let's get into it. So David Alawale was a Nigerian man. He was born in Lagos in 1930 and he migrated from Nigeria um, to Britain in August 1949. Now, he coming over um he was officially classified as a stowaway because he was hiding on board a cargo ship that was on its way to Hull um as he couldn't afford the fare um and wanted to move to Britain now obviously at that time in 1949 um Nigeria is a British colony um and he was able to um get a something called a British travel certificate um he would have been a British citizen um, and so left Nigeria, Lagos, Nigeria, to come to Britain. Um, he came aboard a ship called the Temple Bar ship, um, and he was hiding amongst boxes of groundnuts um, that were being delivered to Hull. Um, he was discovered a few days into his journey, um, and so when the ship arrived, um, he was jailed. Now, this stowaways, um, it sounds like something in, like, um like, oh what's that film called um oh the one with the the pirates pirates of the caribbean like a stowaway on a, on a pirate ship um that's what's conjuring in my mind anyway um but you know he was a stowaway um and that was illegal so he was arrested um when he arrived um and he was put in prison um sometimes and i do remember some cases especially in the caribbean um on the windrush kind of era ships that yeah came from the Caribbean to Britain um stowaways would often just get sent like straight back like they just go on the return voyage um 
also obviously the other option was to be arrested um, and imprisoned and you know once you serve your sentence you would be free he is at the end of the day a British citizen um, and you know he was released um, a little while later um, and he spent a lot of his life or pretty much all of it in Leeds it's where he kind of naturally found himself where he moved to um, and you know started to kind of set up a life for himself and you know, it's been said that he was really fond of the, like, American-style suit, so that his nickname was Yankee. Um, and, you know, there's very few facts about him. We know very little about his life, but we know a lot about the way he died um, and his last months on Earth. And this is where things get really dark and... You know, he's not had the best start in life being arrested um, as soon as he arrives in London at the age of about 19. Um, but, you know, things just things just get unimaginably worse. Um, and the circumstances he finds himself in, you just you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy, to be quite honest. On arrival in Britain, David Oluwale's kind of dreams were to, to be a tailor. He was a tailor by trade. Um, but this, you know, wasn't something that was fulfilled, a dream that didn't happen because in 1953, um, so about four years after his arrival, he became involved in an altercation with police um, and took a truncheon blow to his head. Now, you know, a truncheon is a very heavy object used to um, disarm someone to, to stop them in their tracks, essentially, and to take that to the head is going to cause damage, and it did, um, because he was arrested um, and charged with dis disorderly conduct, and he was sent back to prison. And whilst in prison, he was reported to have been suffering from hallucinations. Um, and obviously, you know, you put two and two together, he was hit on the head with a truncheon with force, so, you know, potentially suffered some kind of brain injuries at that point. Um, he was labelled as a schizophrenic, um, and sent to Menston, which was an asylum outside of Leeds, um, and that, you know, he didn't leave there for for about eight years. Um, whilst he was at Menston, and now, you know, you're thinking about 1960s here, um, I don't know what you know or what you don't know about mental health and the treatment of mental health in that time period. I don't know too much, but I know that it's definitely not what it is today. Um, and the treatments that were used um, in a lot of cases would have made things worse rather than better. Um, and Mr. Oluwale was treated with electric shock treatment, heavy antipsychotic tranquilizers, um, and, you know, if you've had a blow to the head with a truncheon, you know, you're labelled as a schizophrenic, whether that diagnosis was true or not, and then you're dealing with electric shock treatment and antipsychotic tranquilizers. To me, and as I said, I'm no expert, that just doesn't seem like it's going to work. It doesn't sound like it's going to help the person. It doesn't sound like it's going to have a positive impact. And, you know, you wouldn't be wrong to guess that it had a negative impact on his life. So, you know, he's already had a terrible start um, in his arrival in Britain. He isn't able to work as a tailor. And then this altercation with the police leaves him with a brain injury. You know, it might have been brain damage. We don't know that. Um, I'm not a medical expert, but depending on the severity of that truncheon blow. Um, upon his release, which was about eight years later, 
he struggled to secure and hold down a job and quickly became homeless, um, which, you know, is not really something that is unexpected in a situation like this. Um, The mental trauma, I'm sure being a stowaway in the first place was not the best experience, going to prison um, and then going to Menston and dealing with what he dealt with there, it just wasn't really going to... You weren't going to see a positive outcome for David Oluwale um, at this point. Um, and, you know, his the story is quite short because at this point, I say the words, he spent the last two years of his life, um, you know, and he ended up being homeless, as I said, sleeping rough in the city centre. Um, and... He didn't have a job. He didn't have family. Um, He's come on his own as a stowaway. Um, And because he was a stowaway as well, you've got to think there wouldn't have necessarily been um, great record keeping. Um, He wouldn't have had, you know, a ticket purchase details or anything like that to to trace back his family potentially or anyone he knew um, in Nigeria or in Lagos um, more specifically. And so in England, in Leeds, he is he's alone. Um, He's homeless. He has mental health issues. He has severe traumas to the brain. And, you know, it's very understandable that he wouldn't necessarily have been able to help himself into a better situation at that point. Um, And being so young when he arrived in Britain, you know, 19, it's not... You're not exactly... You're an adult in the eyes of the law, but you're not a fully formed, you know, adult brain, shall we say, if we if we say the brain... I think the brain finishes development at 25... So I've been told. Anyway, not the point. The final two years of his life. It feels like when I do a podcast on a person um, and I tell the story of their life, you know, at this point, normally, we'd probably just be getting into, like, their adulthood um, on what they did and what they achieved and what they wrote or what they um, they did. And I'm thinking about the Darkest How episode where, you know, probably this amount of minutes in, if you go back and listen to Darkest How, we would just be getting into thinking about him being a journalist or into broadcasting, but we're already at the end of of Mr. Oluwale's life. And this is where... This is where I struggle, I'll be honest. This is where I struggle because I don't really know how people can be so cruel. Um, Well, I do know because we've got it right here in black and white. Um, But essentially, he became the target of mental and physical abuse at the hands of two police officers, Inspector Jeffrey Elliker and Sergeant Kenneth Kitching. And it's important we know their names because I think we should know sometimes what evil looks like and what evil is called on earth. And again, I give a trigger warning because what this man had to go through at the hands of these two men policemen at that you know I don't have the best comments to make about police forces but again I always note that it's institutional um and you know it's it's a system and all things like that but in this case and don't get me wrong we're going to get into that system very soon but this is and yes it's probably part of a culture of policing at that time but this is just the evil, callous, vicious, disgusting, despicable behaviour of these two men, Elika and Kitching. They would beat him up 
Um, you know, this man is already mentally unwell with traumas, being in prison and a mental asylum place, electric shock therapy, um, a trench into the head that could have caused all kinds of, of trauma or damage. Um, they would beat him up. He would sleep in shop windows. They would urinate on him. They At one point, they drove and dropped him 40 minutes away from like the Leeds city centre um, into the depths of a place called Middleton Woods, 40 minutes away, by car. Um, and he was just told to fend for himself and get back to wherever he was going. Like, in the middle of the night, you know, with the elements against him, he was a homeless man. They abused him, humiliated him, um, and, yeah, routinely, over, like, 18 months, this wasn't just, you know, one-off incident here and there. There was another story that the two police officers bundled him into a van and drove him to a country pub in the middle of the night and made him order a cup of tea and just laughed at him, humiliated him. And I, I just don't know how you'd even think of this stuff. Like, you're an officer of the law and you're urinating on a man that's homeless, sleeping in the streets, before you say to help him or, you know, give him a hand. Or just ignore him, just leave him. Because not harming anyone in a doorway. But that was what David Alawale faced. Um, and it was the 18th of April that it's believed to have been the day he died and it was the last sighting of him alive. Um, he was seen being chased by officers towards the River Eyre um, by those two officers, um, Ella Kerr and Kitching. And two weeks later, his body was found um, in the water, um, face down. Um, and obviously he was dead. So a year and a half of violence, um, humiliation, trauma, on top of everything else that man had gone through in his life, to then, and, you know, we don't know for sure how he died, although I don't know, I don't know about you, but I think two people that are capable of doing so much to a man that is so vulnerable and so helpless, um, yeah, I don't see why they wouldn't have um, pushed him in the river, chased him in the river, forced him to jump in some humiliation. Whatever it was, um, this man lost his life um, that night. And then we think about, you know, what happened next. Because we know this man's name. We know his story now. Well, how did we get to this point? Um, he died in 1969. And now this is where... Whilst we think about the system of policing and the culture, I think it's important to recognise a good apple, shall we say, um, if we think about policing as a tree, a rotten tree. Um, maybe some fruit survive. Um, and that, in this case, it was a man called, a police cadet um, called Gavin Galvin. Um, in 1970, he reported that he had heard... Um, you know, police, people in the force gossiping um, about the way Elika and Kitching um, had treated uh, David Oluwale um, and an inquiry was launched. 
and you know they tried to to piece together what had happened uh, based on the whistleblowing done by Gavin Galvin who I mean you know he could have heard that and just took it to his grave he could have heard that and not said anything um but thankfully he chose to say something and because of that that inquiry started so the charges um that were decided on for the two policemen um were in the end manslaughter perjury and grievous bodily harm now manslaughter not murder manslaughter to me if two people violently torment and humiliate somebody for nearly two years and then they die in circumstances that involve them and you know the witnesses saw them chasing David Olawale with truncheons um towards the river um I find it very difficult to understand why well, I don't find it difficult, it's called racism, but, you know, I find it difficult to understand why it wasn't murder, you know. you. I know that, obviously, the difference between murder and manslaughter is, you know, you know, planning it and intent, but surely that was what would happen next after a year and a half to two years long campaign of violently beating, abusing, violating this man, surely. Like, what What else could that have been? Um, but, of course, the British justice system decided on manslaughter. They're police officers, after all. Do we expect anything else? Not really. And to be quite honest with you, manslaughter, you know, anything... Like, charges against officers. These, this was the first time um, for the death of a black man that charges were brought to an officer, to two officers. Um, and... You know, it's it's very, hmm, it's one of those things where you think, oh, yes, they got him. But I'm going to tell you the sentence and you're going to be like, eh, wow. It's beyond a slap in the face. So they had all those charges against them, manslaughter, perjury, grievous bodily harm. You know, David Oluwale's body was found, taken out the river. They would have seen physically the violence, the abuse, the violation that took place on this, this man do i'm sure a catalogue of injuries um the trial was in november 1971 which is interesting because i'm thinking um just a little tangent that's like mangrove mangrove times uh, mangrove nine and i'm thinking maybe because this was leeds and not london there's another element here whereby one we rarely look at histories outside of london I'm guilty of that myself. Um, and so stories like this go very much under the radar. And two, the way racism and violence towards black people functions in different cities, you know, there could be a point to make there as well. And so back to this sentencing, they were obviously had three charges against them. They were found guilty of only one of them causing actual bodily harm. Elika received 36 months. Yes, you heard it right. 36 months, so three years. And Kitchen received 27 months. 
for just over two years. And I think that really, it just says it all. When, actually, I'll be honest with you, we're not even at the the bit that you, you can get really, really mad at. Like, we, you, if you're listening and, you know, you have <laughs> feelings, you should already be quite furious, sad, upset, confused as to why maybe you didn't know this story before. I felt the same. But we're not even at the bit that really boils my blood. Um, I'll be honest. So, these two men have those pitiful sentences. Um, and... You know, race is clearly a factor here. We've got issues here. We've got race, we've got class, we're thinking about homelessness, thinking about mental health, especially with black men. This is all the things that were happening um, in David Oluwale's life, the intersections of his identity. Um, And, you know, all of these things taken into consideration. Um, An interesting point that I read about was the fact that David Oluwale's nationality on his charge sheet was not listed as British or British Nigerian or Nigerian even. Um, It was listed as WOG. Yep, the racial slur commonly used at that time, WOG. So the police officers on their charge sheet um, clearly showed elements of racial prejudice in literally writing his nationality as WOG. I've said that three times, yes, because I can't believe it either. Um, And it's just, you know, the Race Relations Act is in full swing. And I've said it before, and I'm actually going (laughs) to, next week's episode is actually going to be about this man, Michael X, who was the first person arrested under the Race Relations Act, or charged actually, um, or both. And he was black. Um, Yeah, make that make sense. So, you know, you've got this act to protect black people, to protect people from racism. Um, and it wasn't even thought of. And, you know, I'm sure there's complexities to the law that I do not understand that would make things like that hard, harder to, to prosecute. But really, at this point, they got, what, not even three years, not even really, just over five years collectively um, for what they did to that man. For For what reason? You know, what did he do that was so terrible? You know, he was born with the wrong skin colour born with the wrong <laughs> with the wrong setup in life, you know. Oh. Anyway, the story goes on. Because, you know, as we have, let's say, developed the field of, of Black British history and we've been diversifying the curriculum in different ways, David Oluwale's story comes to light. Um and, you know, it's not a nice story, you know, I I wouldn't expect something like this to get taught in schools, I'll be honest with you, because this is a lot, this is a lot for me, and I've read this story several times, and I'm sure it's a lot for you too, Um, but it is important to know this stuff at some point in your life, and the story gets worse, as I've said, well, it can't, it gets worse, it gets worse, because, you know, of all the things they did and the, sh- the really short sentence and then we move forwards um, and we think about the fact that, um, you know, we're now commemorating this man's life. He was buried in a grave with about nine other people. The only person that attended his funeral was the vicar because he didn't know anyone and nobody 
seemed to care about his life, and especially not those police officers that took it. Whilst the prosecution of Elika and Kitching were, you know, it was the first time that British police officer had been, quote-unquote, successfully tried for their involvement in the death of a black person, you know, this justice can only be characterised, and I take quote from a BBC article, as hollow. It was hollow justice. You know, how, how can you be... You can't celebrate that. That's a slap in the face. But the story continues on. And at this point, I just wanted to um, bring up some points about this story so far um, in a few articles written by a few people that helped me create this episode today. Um, And so just kind of things to think about, I guess. Um, And they just say it in, in a way that I couldn't say it's just so much better. So I'll be sharing their words um, and I will also put these articles in the show notes of this episode. So if you did want to have a listen, um, have a listen, have a read of those um, episodes, then you are free to do that. They will be there. If I don't put them on, send me a message because I do forget these things. We'll start off with um, an article by um, Olivia McGee in called, sorry, The Life and Legacy of David Oluwale, Why Britain Must Remember Him. Um, and she, I quote, she says, race, class, mental illness and homelessness all intersect in Oluwale's tragedy. All our facets are intertwined and reinforce each other, leading to a complex spiderweb of systemic oppression and injustice. And, you know, the point raised here is the failings of several systems in his life. Um healthcare, mental health, provisions, um, obviously the police, they, they went beyond failing. Um, and then the justice system, you know, that systemic oppression of this man in three different aspects. And also then um, these facets of his identity that intersect, race, class, mental illness and homelessness, which I mentioned before, um, which I took from Olivia's article, I will say. Um, you know, it's it is a tragedy what happened to him. Um, but hopefully, and what his story, in one way, should do, is prompt us to think about, you know, the intersections of his identity that impacted his experience in this country, and the systemic failings on so many levels, and oftentimes I think that is the experience of black people in this country. It's a systemic failings on more than one level. And that's why it's really difficult to ever pinpoint, you know, one thing. People have said, like, oh, what are like what do black people really want? Like, you know, what what were the protests for? You know, what what is it that black people wanted? And it is such a ridiculous question because systemic oppression goes across so many different systems and institutions and this case shows it very clearly um it's not just one thing you know racial injustice has several ugly heads and it rears them in very different ways but it comes from the same root and the second quote is from another olivia olivia wyatt um and this is in the history matters journal which is available for free online Um, It's a great journal. If you want to read more about black um, history across uh, 
I say black in the most broadest sense, um, but in relation to Britain, um, it is definitely the place to go. Um, the articles there are fantastic by a range of contributors that, you know, are academics, PhD students, um, master's students, um, and just people that are, have an interest in history. Um, it's very, very good, and you can read about so many different topics, but there was an article by Olivia Wyatt called The Art of Narration, Memory, Voices and Archival Deadening in the Reconstruction of Black British History. Um, and this is in the 2021 issue. Um, and the point she makes here, and she says, I'm still saddened by the prospect that Oluwale's perspective appears to be lost forever, like the enslaved voices who were silenced by their master's control of their archival portrayal. It seems as though Oluwale is destined to die again and again, as archivists and researchers continuously revise the ways in which they present his story for him. I believe that this is the deadening that Perry, and by Perry she means Kenneth Hammond Perry, referred to in her work, um, the metaphorical death that many black British archival subjects undergo as they are silenced, dehumanised and invisibilised by the ways in which people and sources portray them. And I thought this was an interesting point because, you know, it thinks about it. We don't, we will never have his perspective, David Alawale's. It is lost forever in many ways. And that is often the story and the narrative for so many. And by so many, I really do mean millions because millions of voices were lost in the transatlantic slave trade. Um, but even in modern, modern, more modern Britain, so many voices we will never hear, so many perspectives, because those lives were taken due to racism. Whether, you know, you think of black people killed by the police, killed by racist groups of people, unable to tell their story themselves. They become archival subjects. And it's something I've thought about before. There's so many names of so many black people across the world that we know of that become just archival subjects because they are killed, silenced, dehumanised, whether they're, they're lynched in America, killed by the police or so-called neighbourhood watch groups, you know. It's just the same story and for the most part, not to erase the stories of black women, but it's black men. I'm sure you can name at least five black men whose story, whose side of the story we never got to hear because they were taken, they were murdered, they were killed, they were dehumanised, they were brutalised. And this is just another one of those stories. Not just, actually, because his life had value and his life was worth something because he's a human being. Um, but we won't, we won't ever, ever know that, know his perspective. And I just thought that was a really, I don't use the word amazing, but a really great point um, raised in that article. Now, I mentioned this story gets worse, and you might be thinking, how can this story possibly get worse? We're going to fast forward. Fast forward in to now, today, the present, um, because there is a David Oluwale Memorial Association, DOMA, and they campaigned for years to make sure there was a plaque nearby the bridge that David Oluwale was last seen alive, um, a blue plaque 
that would honour his life and honour his memory um, and kind of remind Leeds, shall we say, of what had happened to this man. Now, this went up finally. Money was raised, you know, the plaque was created. It's a long process, you know, to put things in public view, um, to have things memorialised in the public presence. Um, And when it was obviously, you know, given the all clear, money was was sorted, it was on Monday, um, and I'm recording probably about six days after the the plaque, sorry, was put up. Within hours... And I'm not joking, hours. It was stolen. It was vandalised, it was stolen. It was taken down. Hours. This man did nothing to no one. You know? Why is a blue plaque honouring his life so offensive to someone that they feel they should rip it down from its plinth? And the story gets worse because the David Oluwale Memorial Association and other people in the city of Leeds, you know, did their best. They rallied round to create a temporary plaque. You know, they said, you know, we've put this plaque up. Let's have a temporary one while a new one is created or they can find out, you know, who did, who vandalised it in the first place and took it down. So a new one went up. Um, it was kind of like a laminated uh, version of one. And it was it was obviously just to be temporary. Um, because they'd spent years tirelessly campaigning for this man's like life to be remembered in the city. And you guessed it correctly, it was taken down again. So the laminated tribute went up on Wednesday. The original went up on Monday. Hours later it was taken down. The other one went up on Wednesday. Um, and again, it was vandalised. This was a plaque to commemorate a black man who was hounded, violated, dehumanised by the police, vandalised. Like, if... I don't know, if that doesn't say something about this place, then I don't know what will. Um, It's been reported that West Yorkshire Police are treating both as incidents of hate crime, as they should. I hope they find whoever did this. Um, it just, you know, doesn't <laughs> doesn't make sense. But racism, in some ways, doesn't make sense. In some ways it does. It's all about power, influence. Power and influence equals money a lot of the time. Um, but it doesn't make sense because his man died, you know? And it's simply a plaque to honour his life and I think I'll leave this episode with a quote from the third article that I read about this incident um, which was written you know I think within the week um, by Perry Blankston for Tribune magazine Um, and he said though trying to repeatedly tear down his memorials the perpetrators have sought to consign Oluwale to ignominy and death And yet, David Oluwale lives. He lives on through every black person brutalised by the police, through those suffering at the hands of carceral borders, through those stigmatised for mental illness and the incalculable number of unhoused people sleeping rough on our streets. 
Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I hope you have a wonderful week. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the History Hotline. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend to tell a friend. To continue the conversation about black history, head over to our social media platforms at the History Hotline on Instagram and at the History HL on Twitter.